Hey folks, welcome back to The Office. Today we are concluding our series on this article that Barry has conjured up for us, which Barry, if you would remind the audience and me what the name of this article is. Yeah, this is Selling Feminism and How Female Empowerment Campaigns Employ Post-Feminist Discourses by Casey Wendells et al. It's a, It's been a good ride so far. Yeah. I, I particularly enjoyed our last discussion. It was good. I'm not familiar with et al. Are they, do they publish a lot? Ooh, et, yeah. So the other day I was talking to et and Mr. Slash Mrs. All and... The, Shut up. I, I don't know bit. where to go with this okay. joke. I don't know where to go with it. <laughs> For those that don't know, at all refers to when you have, a, usually when you have multiple authors, like more than two or three, you have the first name or the first author and then at all, meaning basically in all the others, right? Yeah, it's Latin for and the rest of them. Uh, we've been discussing the other, you know, major themes. What is the last, uh, what are the last two themes that we're going to come to in this episode? Yeah, so the last two themes that we're going to touch on are actually really closely related. And in fact, based on our pre-discussion before starting the recording for this, it's going to be pretty easy to see how they blend in together. But there's some differentiations that the authors uh, try and put in here. So I'm going to I'm going to work kind of hard to parse out the differences between these two. And the main difference between them is. <clears throat> I will highlight now, but we'll talk about it in more detail. Confidence culture is the first post-feminist form of discourse that they're going to talk about here that we're going to discuss. And it has to do with psychic labor, whereas the second one, love your body, that we're going to talk about is about psychic regulation. So we'll parse that out a little bit more in detail and explain. But confidence culture, I think this was a fun one to read about because the authors get a little playful with the title. They don't give it a a conventional spelling. Confidence culture, the culture is spelled C-U-L-T and then they abbreviate the rest of the word. They're trying to emphasize visually the cult side of culture Mm -hmm. here. And so they're implying that there's kind of this cult mentality that's part of this post-feminist value of confidence. And so let's get into it, starting with what the authors help to define it as. The confidence culture, according to the article, is a technology of self that invites girls and women to monitor and improve their confidence. Right, so that's the function of it. That's what post-feminism is trying to accomplish, to uh, in- encourage girls and women to monitor and improve their confidence. And they define confidence as internally focused strategies for psychic labor geared towards the production of self-belief in girls and women. They continue, I'll finish up here. The confidence culture is gendered, focusing only on women's crisis of confidence. It views confidence as an individual commodity and encourages women to self-monitor, self-focus in, uh, internally, and engage in psychic labor. So, this is these are messages that are are identifying a uh, widespread crisis amongst women that they lack confidence in one way or another and and then encourages women <clears throat> encourages women and girls to then take on the burden of fixing that problem that this is you, look you lack confidence and you got to do something about that it's a problem and the biggest thing standing in your way is you 
right? And and so the it, post-feminism uh, describes the problem as being caused by them by women. Women are the the reason why women are mm-hmm. lacking this confidence that is uh, apparently uh, a thing, right? That's so that's a great ahistorical perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, for for you, like, what what rubs you wrong with that idea? Well, there's a couple things that come to mind. The first is that it very much reminds me of the discourse around race when people say, like, well, you have to stop being a victim. You have to stop, you know, thinking about, you know, the obstacles in your way and that kind of thing. It's all about your own accountability. You're the reason you're not successful and what have you. Which. In any sort of critique of uh, personal success, there is something to be said for one's behavior and accountability. But at the same time, you can't like not acknowledge the larger environments and ecosystems and structures that people exist within, because that is absolutely a I was going to say a component, but many components of what you know influences you know our success or failure. So it kind of reminds me of that quite a bit, right? And also the idea of like yeah. you have this there's this thing that is wrong with you, and you have to be able to fix it. Okay, well, if we're going to talk about how to fix it, I guess there's two approaches to it. One is that I can only focus on myself, right? Or the other is that I can ask, why does this happen to begin with, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's kind of an insanity to this proposed problem and proposed solution. Like if the proposed problem is you have this thing, this phenomenon happening within you, you are lacking confidence, and we're not going to acknowledge the systems or the environment that you're living in that helps to produce that problem, right? So if the world outside, if the environment we live in is not creating this widespread thematic problem across an entire gendered population, then the problem is, the solution is primarily within the individual, Mm -hmm. right? The insanity of that is if this is a problem that just naturally occurred and it like it's just something that occurred without anyone having just like produced it. Right. Then asking the individual who had no part in creating that problem to fix the problem by just not being that way anymore is insanity. Yeah. And it's a perfect formula for a cyclical guilt cycle. Yeah. Into perpetuating this. Uh, I lack confidence. Okay. Next time I'm going to be confident. And then you go out into society that is constantly producing this problem for you. And then you fail because, oh, shoot, you're not actually addressing the source of the problem. But you don't know that. You think it's just some internal struggle for yourself. And if you can think your way out of it, then fine. Mm -hmm. And so then you feel guilty about that or you feel weak or you feel whatever. And so then you rev yourself up again, try a new way of like thinking your way into being more confident. And then you go out into the world and it all falls apart again in some spectacular fashion. You come back and you have to reflect on that and find out another way that you can think yourself into it. I mean, that this is what I think encapsulates the cult side of sure. the confidence culture that they're trying to wink and nod at. That like cults don't get you to provide labor and like labor, money, time, sometimes even your own body to like dedicate to the pastor or the mm-hmm. cult leader or whatever, just be like, they don't get you to do that by just asking you to, they get you to do that by saying, look, yeah. you have this pain. 
the solution is this thing that is inside you that you got to like figure out. And I know the method to help you do that. I got the thinking method or, you know, the think system that the music man talks about Mm -hmm. and I'll help you become what you need to be. You have these things called thetans. Right. And the pain that the cult leader identifies is real. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's a true pain point that people Mm -hmm. feel and the solution sounds accessible enough that it's worth pursuing and then the excuses for why the solution doesn't work over and over again help get you back into that cycle all over again right because the two things that it does is it it pathologizes number one it pathologizes what's wrong with you right or it it pathologizes the thing with which you are struggling let me put it that way right which is to say it goes from being a thing that is happened to you or a thing that is afflicted upon you to something that is inherent and intrinsic to you right so that something that you are personally producing at that point right something that is tied to the very nature of your being and the second and that is its own like not productive conceptual way to frame these things often unless we're talking about an actual condition right an actual medical or clinical condition right but the second thing that this does is that it is encourages you to seek an answer that decidedly ignores the things that caused it to happen right the uh, external influences and things like that it's this idea that you can like like self-mortification used to be a way of, used to be a method of prayer and repentance within, I'm sure within other religions, but, you know, certainly within Christianity and, and Catholicism in particular, where you would like scour the flesh, you would harm yourself, right? As a way yeah. of getting over your sinful thoughts and things like right, that right. and what have you. And all, and that the idea of you have something inherently wrong with you combined with the only solution is found within the self, which is a bit of a weird paradox, right? Yeah. Right. The idea that there's something wrong with you and only you can fix yourself, which would suggest then that is the solution actually going to be that productive? Because you're if this is true, you're operating from a flawed basis already. Right. Am I even capable of fixing a problem that I had? no control over the production of that problem in the first place. Yeah. Right. And then by deciding to only focus on the self to the exclusion of external forces, risks really just, or it almost guarantees that this is going to be a repeatable thing, right? This is going to be yeah. a cycle, right. which serves the interest of whatever larger structure we're talking about. Right. Right. right? And I, it, this whole thing reminds me of a time when a, a dear friend of mine shared with me a video of this guy who, and this will be a little outside, but it, I think it perfectly resembles this confidence culture idea um, and shows how insidious this all can actually be. But this friend of mine shared a video of this guy who claimed to have been rejected by the medical community for his wild ideas, his unconventional ideas, but were totally confirmable by the medical community. But they didn't want him to be able to like share this message, right? So there, there's the beginning of an right. MLM or right. cult. What's the difference? I don't know. So be careful. That those automatically the are difference. the signs of a grifter, right? Right. But it's it, the reason why it works for grifters is because it's appealing. We all live in a world that has major frustrations. And if your major frustration is with the medical community, then a guy that says, I've discovered something and the medical community wants to keep you from knowing about it. Right. 
it's very easy. It's at, that is a very easy jumping point into well, cool. I'm up for anything better than what I'm currently dealing with because it's right. horrendous to deal with my insurance, horrendous to deal with the doctor's office, whatever. Mm-hmm. So this guy in mentioning buzzwords like what is it? He mentions all sorts of man. It's late. <laughs> Are we talking about things like big pharma and stuff like that? Well, he even gets into, he uses like big buzzwords from neuroscience and even quantum mechanics. He brings up quantum mechanics so often and like, but then also brings it back to terminology that's a little bit more accessible, like the placebo effect. And he's basically making the argument that people have an, a locked up part of their brains that we have stopped using. The ancients Is this- used to be able to use this thing where like you're able to like heal yourself. Is this part of that and- whole like you only use 10% of your brain myth? It, he definitely was leaning in on that. Yeah, definitely. Right. Which- and so if you could be like our ancient ancestors who were able to uh, do all this. He's also depending on you not knowing like the history of illnesses and things like that. So right. he's like, yeah. why is it that all of a sudden people are autistic when they never used to be? Why is it that people all of a sudden have cancer these days when they never used to? And why is, you know, like all of these things. And, you know, like for someone who doesn't study that stuff, sure. Like, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not prepared to argue that in any like very serious way. So if I know just a smidgen less than I currently do, I'm susceptible to mm-hmm. reasoning that follows that cascading logic. Oh, right? sure, yeah. And yeah. so then he gets into like, really what it is, is I have developed and uh, his language for describing this is far better than the way that I'm pitching it. I, oh, I'm, he's good at it, I'm sure. Yeah, but like he, he's his basic pitch is this think system can help you resolve depression, help you resolve illnesses and everything. And the only reason why you are experiencing any of those things is because you aren't basically using your brain correctly. And so come with me on this journey. I'm going to help you use your brain correctly correctly we're going to start small and help resolve things like emotional disorders and then we'll grow from there and anyone if you know like people the medical community remember they are trying to suppress these stories that are that seem miraculous but we've tapped into this part of our brains and i can teach you how is basically what he's doing the only feedback that i had for my friend was i don't really want to subscribe to a system like that again not just because again <laughs> not just because it's probably not true but also because it's a pretty loathsome way to feel about myself mm. if i'm struggling medically mm-hmm. with something or if i'm struggling with a mental health uh, disorder or just a a, a situation that is uh, is very serious to me and i go through with this system and i don't find results, then who's to blame? Yeah. According to his system, it's me. Right. I failed. And then I have to reckon with that. I have to, I, and I can either face the realities that I was conned, which hurts and is embarrassing and sucks. And all, all my family was telling me I was getting conned and nobody believed me anyway. So then I'd have to face the, you know, like I I would have to face that or 
I try again and this time invest more fully. This time invest more sincerely. This time practice more and like maybe it'll work this time, right? And mm -hmm. I go down that road again and again and again to the point where I'm no longer worried about the guilt of or the embarrassment of being wrong. Now I'm fully in. Right. And I'm on, I, I find minor successes and minor things. And those are signs and signifiers that I have, that this is real, that this is true, that this is going to happen for me. I just am getting there. It's just a process. Right. Right. And so bringing it back to confidence culture, I feel like this is the same insidious message that's being sent that look, you've got this problem. The solution is in your mind. You actually just need to change the way that you do this with your mind. And so these companies that are saying like, you deserve to be happier, so you need to do the work to become a whole person. You need to get up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and surround yourself with things that make you more confident, like our products, like our brand, like our soap, like our whatever it might be, right? And it's really insidious because we know research shows over and over again that happiness is not attained through consumption. It never is. I mean, there is an exhaustive, I, I wish I had it pulled up ready for us. I, I probably- I had a bacon wrapped Italian sausage today at a state fair and I'm inclined to disagree. <laughs> Checkmate. You, you, you proved me wrong. You got me there. I cannot fight that. To, fight to your that. point, though, I've heard studies of things like, you know, once you hit like $70,000 in annual income, like your ratio, like the rate at which you become happier starts to like dramatically dwindle, right? In terms of like yeah. up until that point, your happiness is very closely connected to your income. And then after that, like, you know, things, it starts to drop off quite a bit in terms of like how much your income influences your happiness and whatnot. And I, I would just like an opportunity to test that right. but the research does suggest that there is that that is the case right yeah it's not to say that having enough to meet your needs and even your physical as well as emotional needs is not going to help you it, it is to say though that the consumption of products as a means to as a sole means to resolving internal struggles in your life is has not proven to actually make things better right right and not and in a meaningful so long-term sustainable way no right 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 uh, satis momentary satisfaction is obviously not the same as like fulfillment and a sustained lifelong confidence in that manner so it's something that i think is is one of those where because you can get momentary satisfaction out of wearing particular clothes or aligning yourself with organizations or a brand that seems to or appears to have a positive message behind it and so on. Because you can have momentary satisfaction from those things, it's like those little signs and signifiers that maybe the method is working. I just need to keep practicing. Right. And these brands are not interested in you actually getting better and feeling better about yourself. These brands are interested in you feeling like their brand is helping you. Yeah. Whether you ever arrive at full confidence. What, and this is all just with the assumption that confidence is the problem in the first place, right? Like right. It's, it's proposed, but it's not necessarily the problem. And so if we're talking about things like, let's say, makeup 
right? Or fashion or something along those lines. It's easy to, for someone who operates from this perspective of the self-confidence as the solution to confuse the momentary elation that comes from a purchase or, you know, wearing one of these products, that kind of thing with, to confuse that with an actual moment of happiness, right? And then that, so it creates a false positive, right? And then when that, like you say, when that feeling fades, inevitably the answer goes back to, oh, well, it's still me. Right. Yeah. Like as yeah. a problem. But the other thing that comes to mind that I think sort of factors into this is you mentioned self-monitoring earlier. Right. Yeah. And self-monitoring this idea of like, you know, scrutinizing yourself in this capacity. It brings to mind the panopticon a little bit. <laughs> right. So you become a panopticon of one. And I don't know if yeah. we've talked about this idea before, but in case we have not a whole lot. No. Yeah. So if you're not familiar, the panopticon was a prison that was designed by uh, a fellow named Jeremy Bentham. I forget what exactly he was particularly known for. I don't know if he was an engineer or philosopher or whatever it was. Admittedly, in like the 1700s, all of those things could be the same person with an equal amount of credentials. (laughs) So, but the Panopticon was this idea of a prison wherein you have a, basically a, a cylinder, right? With a domed roof. And that cylinder has prison walls all around or has uh, prison cells all around it. And then you have like, a guard tower in the middle. And the idea was that if, you know, constructed the guard tower in a particular way and have it and had it lit in a particular way, it would be difficult to know if anyone was ever in there. Right. And so the prisoners would feel like they were being watched at all times because every cell was visible from the guard tower. But the other component of that is that the, the prisoners would also monitor each other. Right. Yeah. And the idea, and this was, this has been largely discarded by almost every like almost every penal system because it's seen as cruel and inhumane because there's never a point where you feel like you're not being watched yeah right right right. and that is that is torturous i know of one prison that exists i think it's i think it's in delhi india that has been around i want to say since like the 18 late mid to late 1800s i want to say but there's only like a handful in the world because typically speaking they're seen as cruel and inhumane Now, I bring that up because one of the things that social media does is it creates a panopticon effect where we feel like we're being monitored at all times. Yeah. Right. And so this idea of self-monitoring, right, this idea of scrutinizing the self, I think, exists within a larger context of the way in which we police each other. Right. Or at least Mm -hmm. we believe we're being policed. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not right. because, it, you know, everyone and their mother has a social media account. Right. At this point, it's ubiquitous. And particularly if you're someone who not even trying to be an influencer, but just someone who enjoys using social media, like on Instagram or TikTok and have it public facing like you are then susceptible to that as well. And even right. outside of that, in the day to day world, if everyone is self-monitoring their confidence level, that is going to inevitably include some degree of assessment of the confidence levels of other people, right? So-and-so is confident. So this other person is not right. Well, how do they do it? What are they doing? And how does that Mm -hmm. then inform how they Mm -hmm. go about themselves? So what you have by this sort of hyper awareness and positioning self-confidence as a internal solution to an intrinsically internal problem, again, using that framing. Yeah. Like it, I think this lends itself to a panopticon effect of monitoring everybody. And inter- yeah, and social media particularly being one where it also, I feel like it creates the illusion that you get 
to see folks and there's nothing new to this idea right like you get the snapshots in time from folks and you only get to see the cool stuff that they're doing right you don't Mm -hmm. get to see and and that particularly becomes a problem when like families become like social media family (laughs) influencers oh boy yeah we have a situation in utah right now where social media influencer family their kids got taken away by dss because it turned out they were pretty abusive oh wow <laughs> and, and it was very publicly done and it a lot of it was driven by this need to keep up appearances produce content and produce a public facing family that appeared to have the values needed to be what's considered a, a wholesome good family right right and the the um I, I think on individual levels as well, we are constantly, we get the sense that we're constantly getting to see into the lives of our friends, our family, our influencers, our, yeah. our celebrities. And it teaches us a way to present ourselves online as well. We think that mm-hmm. we have to keep up with that or at least align ourselves with that same value system. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned enjoying social media because I don't know that we do. I, I, I don't. I, I know that it's possible to think that we're enjoying it. I don't know that we are enjoying it though. <laughs> I have moments of legitimate enjoyment with social media. I've gotten to meet some really cool people. I will say that combined with what appears to be the ratio of positive to negative, along with combining that component with the fact that our brains naturally focus on the negative, boy howdy, does it seem like a net negative. <laughs> But in all seriousness, like I, I, I do enjoy social media, it, but it is one of those things that like, good day. I, I absolutely uh, become or am sus or what's the word I'm looking for? Susceptible? Susceptible to this idea of like the self-monitoring, particularly when it comes mm. to confidence and things like that. For sure. You know? Yeah. 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 So, Okay. Yeah. The next principle is love your body. Now, this gets very closely tied into it and they kind of blur together in some ways. There's a lot of Venn diagram overlap in some ways, but let's parse out the differences. So from the article, love your body discourses are positive emotional messages that exhort us to believe we are beautiful, to remember that we are incredible, and to tell us that we have the power to redefine the rules of beauty. All of which is a profound lie. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, my, my apologies. Keep going. The, <laughs> it, it goes on to say, advertisers that utilize love your body discourse, such as Dove and Special K, attempt to provide a reprieve from hostile body judgment and strict beauty standards. <laughs> Instead, though, they demand women shift uh, from one type of regulation, a focus on the body, to a different type of regulation, a focus on the mind. And so scholars refer to this as the psychic regulation and psychological self-improvement. So I, I really like the, their this final quote from them. They say, while previous generations saw advertisements that encouraged women to discipline their bodies through diets, exercise, and makeup, today's women must also have only positive thoughts about themselves. So it's stamp out any bad feelings that you have about yourself. No, no, no. Bad, 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 bad. Stop. Stop it. Stop it. Mm -hmm. You need to see, you have to see yourself positively. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I was laughing a little bit earlier at the idea of Special K, the cereal being roped into this because that that tickles me to no end. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I get it. I mean, that's a part of their thing, right? Is, you know, the whole healthy body, psychic labor that goes along with that. Yeah. So, so well, I yeah. see myself as a man getting roped into this, mm-hmm. right? Like I see myself and other men getting roped into perpetuating this type of message often. Yeah. That, like, no, no, no. Stop, stop it with any negative feelings about yourself. You need, what's right, good for right, you right, right, right now right. is you need to like yourself. You Stop yes. it. Yeah. Your job right now is not to face the realities of your body. Your job right now is to face the reality that you're supposed to be feeling good about yourself. Which it, is it's you are wrong. Right. If you are doing if you are feeling negative about yourself in any way. Which which can be well intentioned, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. But is absolutely totally. the inappropriate response at times. Yeah. Well, because yeah. as as the article puts it, it, it places a a new type of work for women to have to do, mm-hmm. right? That not only are they getting these messages, because it's not like messages about their bodies and, and creating insecurities about their bodies has stopped. It's that now there's this whole host of new messages that say, look, we know you don't feel good about your body and that's bad. You should shut up, basically, is what it's saying in a in a much nicer package, right? right? Like, yeah. stop feeling bad. You're not allowed. Yeah, you're... <laughs> <laughs> you're wrong right yeah right in, yeah. in a very judgmental way it this kind of reminds me of i had a buddy a few years ago who called me he, he had some major stuff happen in his life not great news some personal life so, sort of stuff that had happened and i knew it happened and i reached out to him to ask if he want to talk and he said no i didn't want to talk anything like that so okay cool yeah. and then like you know maybe a month or so maybe you know four to six weeks later he reaches out and says hey i'm ready to talk now he says and the reason i didn't want to talk to you to begin with was because i know you're not going to make me feel good you're going to make me feel the things i need to feel and i don't want that mm, yeah <laughs> so, yeah yeah. yeah. That is my skill set. If you ever thought, man, I bet Dr. Cruz, I bet Gabe is, is, is fun to have as a friend. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> my advice is to hold up a mirror. This much I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I can confirm. Absolutely. You're not a fun friend. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't believe this happened. I can. You're a shit human being. Like, what, what, would you, what did you expect? No. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting. And, and we had chatted a little bit about this before we started recording. But this phrase that I've encountered relatively recently, right, from students of mine, or, or I won't say students of mine, but students at my institution, and this is not unique to them uh, by any yeah. means, but like this idea of guys will say, oh, well, you know, you look better without makeup, right, to women, which yeah, just, just a very superficial assessment of that, you're telling this person you don't like how they express themselves. You don't like the way they look. Yes. And they presented themselves the way they felt like presenting themselves. And you've decided to go out of your way to tell them it wasn't good enough still. Oh, yeah. And in the interest of like full disclosure, I was that guy as a high schooler. Right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And boy, like man alive, that was not the way to be. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Mm -hmm. because it. Yeah. There's nothing like being a man thinking you're bucking the system by just like. By offering your opinion on something. Yeah. Well, not just offering your opinion, but like offering an equally problematic opinion, just a different one, right? It is in effect saying, you know what this woman needs to feel empowered? Me to tell her how to feel empowered. Yeah, exactly. 
Good God. It's bad. Right? I have often thought uh, that if, if my parents had just like, you know, thrown me to the wolves at the age of 15, I'd have had it coming. <laughs> yeah. Entirely. Yeah. But on, on a more serious note, like, yeah, it is this idea of that statement is has a few things happening in it. One, it is a rejection of the person as they are in that moment. Right. Two, it is asserting that you know better than them. Right. And that therefore they should listen to you. Right. Yeah. And third, it is reinforcing in a ostensibly or, or I'll say deceptively attempting to be deceptively ben, uh, benevolent way or benign way of reinforcing an external power as what determines the person's like attractiveness or things like that, which is also the conceit of these mm -hmm. commercials, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If these commercials did not believe in an external force telling, you know, people in general and women in particular, what was best for them and how to be their best selves, then they wouldn't do it. What's catching us off guard. And I think what's making this advertising effective for, for all of us is that we are so easily fooled into thinking that these pro-social messages are in contrast to or against their profit motive, making it seem like they don't actually, the profit motive is canceled out at that oh, point. Oh, sure. They don't right. actually it, care. Uh, it's nice, but that's not what we're here, right? Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. And so and that's why we have so many commercials, not just about women's issues, but so many commercials that take on this sort of long form content formula, mm -hmm. because that in itself is also a signifier of some sort of more authentic messaging. Right. right, right We're right, right. So, so used to the smash and grab 30 second ad that just like very quickly jumps in, tells you to buy a thing, jumps out. But and so to have to have a company like Dove or like CoverGirl actually put together a docu series about an issue of some sort, right? Then all of a sudden, oh shoot! Like that, they're trying to say something important, you know? Because the implication is that if you are taking the time and effort, energy, and resources to do this long form thing, it must be serious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 No one's yep. no one's making, you know, documentary length commercials outside of like HSN. <laughs> right that that's the public understanding of it right I, in fact actually it's interesting to see in 2014 american express put out a feature length documentary about the predatory banking system and what yeah 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 and it's incredible it's very well produced it was narrated by tyler perry sorry it, aerosmith tyler perry no, it was narrated by Tyler Perry. That's, no, no, no. As in Tyler Perry of Aerosmith. No. Okay. <laughs> Wait, now you're making me back up. Uh, I'm not crazy, am I? No, Tyler Perry, the actor. Who the hell is Tyler Perry? You don't know who Tyler Perry is? He owns like half of Atlanta. <laughs> Holy shit. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not that's not the lead singer of Aerosmith. Who's the lead singer? No, it's of, not. Who's the lead singer of Aerosmith? <laughs> I don't know anymore. I don't know that I care, Aerosmith. It's it's Steven Tyler. Tyler Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler. Is, Tyler. Is, oh my goodness, that was the, painful. Christ. 
I was so your your confidence going back to that your confidence it's, in look, correcting me there made me go like look oh shoot look, I did it I totally said someone else's name it's, what is this it's late no. it's late it's Tyler Perry it's Tyler Perry look <laughs> just it's all good okay this documentary was was very legit in how it was made it was it, it had a film yeah. premiere the Young Turks YouTube channel when they were at the height of the Young Turks being a thing before they just kind of fizzled out. The the Young Turks hosted the premiere and they like did live Q&A sessions on it. And so it was like you have this progressive liberal left leaning YouTube channel that is hosting the premiere of I mean, this thing about banking, uh, the pred- more, predatory banking system. Right. More and than the that, film, like the Young Turks market themselves as leftists, not yes. liberals, but like. Right. Like died in the war leftists. So that's wild as hell to me. But okay, Yeah. 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 Exactly. All of that. They very perfectly manufactured a sense of authenticity where there was none. Mm -hmm. And the website for the film, I don't know that it's still up, but I definitely made sure to go to the Wayback Machine and document like the pages. It. If you go to their website for the film, it's it's structured like an advocacy film, one that like is tied to a nonprofit, and it has like, here's how you host a screening for you and your friends or for you and your community, right? And here's That's talking gross. points that you can have, yeah. And it, it even has what can you do now that you've seen the film. What are action steps that you can take to fight back against the predatory banking system? And one of the steps in particular is it burning all down? Firebombs. No, right? Yeah. No. It's to lobby your state senators for a bill that was designed to allow banks to offer incentives, quote unquote to consumers for starting new bank, new savings accounts and reaching goals whenever they reach a certain amount. So like, has and that has nothing to do with the film. Nothing right, to right, do with right, the film. Right, right. It's not part of the message. It's not saying the film never identifies that. Ah, oh, gosh, darn it. If only there were prizes that you could get like a cool beanie from Bank of America whenever you opened up a new savings account, then, mm-hmm. you know, that would solve it. They never mentioned that at all, but it is one of the action items. Here's something you can do. Lobby or like email your senator today about this bill to vote yes on this one thing. So they're like actively trying to influence legislation right. that allows them to, they also encourage you to make use of a new kind of credit card that American Express uh, obviously has has put out that uh, caters to low income folks and it's like wow that's amazing that's that is an action item that's going to teach them I was I thought you were going to say that like one of the new features of this uh, new kind of card is that when you uh overdraft or when you fail to meet your uh, minimum monthly payment they appropriate 30 percent of your liver to be sold on the black market um, beautiful yeah totally yeah <laughs> that might as well right might as well it's one of those things that like it cost american express four hundred thousand dollars total for the entire campaign for the making the film and for putting it out there that's kleenex and money that's I mean, cheap that's that's like tissue money like yes yeah yeah. yeah, that's cheap. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at millions of dollars to produce uh, a regular 30 second ad mm-hmm. that would air nationally. And this was 
pennies compared to that. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, it was incredibly powerful. They got write-ups from magazines. They they contractually tied Tyler Perry to an interview circuit to to advocate for the film and to like. And so he did interviews with these folks, mm-hmm. obviously because he's the big name on the project. And so much so, and he spoke about the film in such a way that people were mistakenly crediting this film as a Tyler Perry production. This was a Tyler Perry film. Mm. He made the film and he's advocating for right. all of this stuff. And I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. It, yeah. American Express's fingerprints are all over it. And yet people disregard all of that because all the other signs and signifiers are enough to say, well, maybe it's not actually that bad. Mm. You know? And I think that's the thing with these pro-social messages in our advertising is that they the advertisers use enough signifiers that are part of our social justice advocacy, part of different movements and so sure. on, that they're not trying to get you to forget about the sales aspect of the ad. They're trying to get you to say, mm, maybe my critique of this is not as strong anymore. I, I'm not quite sure that I have enough ground to stand on to say that this company's shallow. But you know? that's, I mean, Slavoj Žižek referred to like companies like Tom's, right? That, you know, you yeah. buy a pair, they donate a pair, that kind of thing, right. which right. does nothing to solve the problem of why children don't have shoes in right. certain parts of Africa. But it's capitalism with the smiley face. Yes. Yep. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's more palatable right now, and that's why we're jumping on board with it. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So, anyways, that is the that is the article as a whole. There's actually a lot more depth to the article. Obviously, we can't contain in a, in a single podcast, but or in a, in a podcast series entirely. But I, I do recommend looking it up. It is fantastic. It's also fairly recent research, and I think is a pretty incredible contribution to the body of research in advertising, which is pretty pretty much just. If I'm painting with a, a broad brush, legal mind control. It, you know, mass communication began as an effort to create more effective propaganda for World War II, right? Yeah. yeah. And officially, it ceased at that time. <clears throat> it, the, those efforts did not go past the 1960s. But unofficially, boy, howdy, have they gotten good at it. Yeah. 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 So good. Well, I hopefully, I mean, one of the impacts that this has had on me in digesting this research a lot more is that I have been able to take this new lens on post-feminism and apply it to the media that I consume. And that media is in social media. I think it's probably most important to see it within our social media atmospheres because the crux of social media is to disarm the consumer yeah, yeah. To, to get you to open up and take in a message more fully. Right. And it uses mm-hmm. authenticity to do that. It uses sensationalism to do that. But it, and so if we see, you know, messaging that seems adjacent to social justice messaging, but seems like it's dumbed down in some sort of a way, it's probably operating in the same fashion, right? As post-feminism is. Well, it's mm-hmm. it's taking the teeth out of the action, but trying to make you feel like you are partaking in it without actually 
having any real impact. Yeah, it's it's promoting an ahistorical, non-contextual perspective on the self, while also in the context of social media, I mean, getting you to embrace becoming the product. Yeah. Right. Totally. And totally. and those are and that is post feminism. That is post-racialism, which we need to talk about one of these days. But this idea of the individual as the only relevant point of interest within these things, right? Because, of course, also the individual has buying power, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. So good. So So good. good. Well, I look forward to seeing what we talk about next week. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) What will that be? All right, folks. Uh, of course, if you want to hear more of this, you know, foolishness, you can find me on uh, GA Cruz underscore PhD on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, you know, please send us your comments, questions, concerns, your, you know, give us a like, give us a review, share us with your friends and your enemies. Play us at notable moments in life that you wish to commemorate with the dulcet tones of Barry talking, at least for these last several episodes. So, yeah, actually, I think you've hit your quota for the year. I don't know if you're allowed to talk anymore after this episode. Um, Hmm. Am I am I allowed to respond to that or have I reached the quota? <laughs> I think that is your allowed response. So, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, we look forward to seeing y'all next week uh, and back in the office. Bye.